You can't be traded on an exchange. You can't make money. It can never go up. And that's why the lawyers who took payment in the utility tokens knew what they were doing was wrong because the lawyers would never have taken payment in a token that couldn't go up because it was a utility token. Welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now it's time to get a bit cryptic. David Silver is the founding partner of Silver Miller and is focused exclusively on representing aggrieved investors and cryptocurrency users worldwide to recover their financial losses. He's been a featured guest contributor on popular crypto sites such as Coindesk. He's been in the news recently for creating class action lawsuits against well-known companies such as BitConnect, Tezos, Coinbase, and Kraken. Basically, he's the punisher for crypto. My name is Jeff. And this is Alain Leon, aka Bitcoin Vango. And we are super, super excited to have David Silver here on the podcast. Miko highly recommended you. And based on all the stuff I've read about you online, I think you have a ton of interesting things to talk about. So we're really glad to have you on the podcast here. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And I thank Miko for saying good things about me. Miko's a really good dude. We wanted to talk to you as soon as he mentioned you. <laughs> His review of you was, he's not such a bad guy. He's actually super cool and it'd be fun to talk to him. So here you are. I say this all the time. People should love me. I'm only out there to help people make money and keep money. And that's one of the topics we wanted to talk to you about. Why nobody actually loves me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some people do. Yeah, that's, a, that's more of a therapy session thing. I don't know about it. <laughs> We're not licensed therapists. We can't talk about that. So, David, tell us a little bit about your background. So, I've been an attorney for about 15 years. I went to University of Michigan undergrad. I went to University of Miami for law school. After law school, I went to work for one of the biggest law firms in the country in Washington, D.C. for about 10 years. I left there and came back to Miami in 2010 and I launched my own firm. I've now got about, I think as of today, I've only got four lawyers. I, used to, I usually run about six lawyers. We help people who lose money. It doesn't matter the context. The last couple of years, we got into the crypto space. I've been doing crypto cases since mid-2014, and I accidentally became one of the leading cryptocurrency advocates in the country. David, a uh, quick question. So, what made you decide to jump into the crypto space, and how does one accidentally become the leading lawyer in that field? So, basically, in 2014, there was an exchange in Delray Beach called the Cripsy Exchange. And after Mel Gox went down, a guy by the name of Paul Vernon, Big Vern, started the Cripsy Exchange. And the Cripsy Exchange, if he had just bet on himself, Paul Vernon would be one of the richest men in the country, probably the world right now. Because in 2014, Big Vern opened up an exchange with every altcoin you can imagine. And he took US dollars, he took Bitcoin, he took any coin you could fund your account. And the reason was was because he wasn't complying with any U.S. law. He wasn't applying, complying with any laws. He was just stealing the money. So when you're just stealing the money, it's really easy to say you take all the coins because he didn't really care. So the first case I did with him, he stole about – now, Bitcoin at that time was about three, four hundred a coin. And he stole about $20,000 worth of coin from one of my clients. And at that time, I didn't know anything about Bitcoin. 
I just kind of got into it because a buddy was talking about it. I said he had a friend who had his Bitcoin stolen. And I helped him get his money back. About six months later, Big Vern, who he was a family man living in Delray Beach. Unfortunately, he had his family and his girlfriend and his girlfriend's family. And since he believed in family so much, he put the kids into the same private school class because he really wanted them to bond together. And he picked his girlfriend over his wife and he took $8 million of his user's money in early 2015. And think about that. That's a lot of Bitcoin because at the time, Bitcoin was only $500 a coin in January 2015. And he's now living in China with his girlfriend. Hmm. So that started, we sued as a class action in that case. I started talking about cryptocurrencies and that case actually yielded a class action against Coinbase because at the time he laundered all of the Bitcoin he stole through Coinbase. And Coinbase in two, circa 2014, 2015 is, was very different than what Coinbase is today. And a lot of people ask me about my belief in different cryptocurrencies, whether they're good, they're bad, which ICOs are good, which are bad. I'm a huge proponent of the technology. I'm a huge proponent of what's going on, the innovation. All I do is represent people who got into the space very early, who think they should be very rich right now and lost all their money because there are some bad characters in the space. Let me ask you a question. You said he was laundering it through Coinbase. For a lot of us that aren't familiar with these terms, does that mean Coinbase was in any way doing anything that perhaps was illegal or he, they were just being used by him in some way? What was going on there? So basically, especially in 2015, there weren't a lot of ways in the United States to convert your Bitcoin into US dollar. So in 2015, there were some exchanges in the US, but now where Coinbase, Kraken, Poloniex, Bitfinex, uh, do a billion dollars a day in transactions. Back then, there was probably less than a hundred million a day being transacted. And you couldn't just walk in. So he converted eight million dollars in Bitcoin plus. So you use the word illegal. I don't like the word illegal. I'm a civil attorney. Illegal goes to criminality and, you know, the criminal justice system. Okay. I simply say that they were negligent by not knowing who their customer was and not knowing that they were converting too much money for someone because it was good for them not to know. And we filed a lawsuit that basically says they had an obligation to know that they were laundering money. And as we flash forward to 2018, that's what a lot of the regulators, the SEC, the CFTC, FinCEN, the DOJ, the IRS, that's what everyone's talking about nowadays is how to regulate these cryptocurrencies so that because the cryptocurrency exchanges are just like banks. When you go there, you hand them a Bitcoin, you can buy a Bitcoin. A lot of these exchanges, they'll loan you money and let you buy Bitcoin or different cryptocurrencies on margin. So they're treating you like a banking customer because there's so much, like I said, a billion dollars a day that gets transacted on each exchange right now. There's so much money going through that the government wants to make sure it's regulated, that these exchanges know who their customers are, that there's no anti-money laundering going on, and that there's safe security in the assets. So that's where all the KYC laws and AML laws come in? So all the KYC, AML, 
all of that comes from the fact that if you deal in securities and financial products, you have to know who's getting money and what they're doing with it. For instance, and we'll go back to Cripsy in 2015, for Coinbase to have converted that $8 million in Bitcoin, they would have had to believe that Paul Vernon was doing a trillion dollars in business. There was no exchange, let alone a little rinky-dink exchange in Delray Beach, Florida, that was doing a trillion dollars in business for him to have that type of spread based on what he was doing. So we allege that Coinbase did fail to know who their customer was and is therefore liable. And that $8 million is now worth 500 to 5,000 to 10,000, call it $130 million today. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. It's a pretty penny. That's a lot of money. So essentially is he wanted to get cash, right? So he didn't want just the Bitcoins. And his exchange was only accepting crypto, right? And he had no form to convert it to cash. So he opened an account in Coinbase, transferred it there. And then, you know, like, like a lot of us do, have it connected to our bank and then selling it there and getting the money to his bank and then just taking the cash out. Is that essentially it? I think that just nailed it on the head. Okay. Do the aggregated investors come to you for help or do you reach out to them or how does that work exactly? So the aggrieved investors... I do a lot of advertising, but they usually end up coming to me. Right now, the biggest cases I have are the Kraken class action is probably worth 150 to $200 million. On May 7th, 2017, there was a flash crash of Ether on Kraken. Okay. And it was only on Kraken. And basically, all the investors who had margin on Kraken that day got blown out of their positions. Yes. While Kraken was under a DDoS attack. And for those who don't know what a DDoS attack is, a denial of service. I assume anyone listening to this is more technologically aware than I am. A lot of our listeners are, yeah, we'll know, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, what happened was they shut down the Kraken platform, but they allowed a large trade which crashed the price of Ether from 97 to $10 for an hour while the site was down blew out all their clients, and then reopened an hour later with the price of Ether back to 97 and told everyone, sorry, you guys are shit out of luck. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that fiasco, I would call it. So it happened at Kraken and Coinbase. Coinbase made everybody whole. Kraken told everyone, sorry. Hmm. So needless to say, my clients aren't particularly happy about that and like their money back. Now, to ask you about generally about, let's say, Kraken, you're not saying that perhaps a Kraken is not a good exchange here, at least what I'm hearing from you, or that they're a bad exchange. You're saying that in this particular scenario, what happened was not right, but you're not saying that they're like illegitimate or that they're going to run away with your money and people should be careful. Am I correct in there? You want to maybe add a little bit to that? So I published an article on Coindesk called, I love Bitcoin, that's why I sue exchanges. I believe that exchanges, some are going to survive, some aren't. I think the most important thing to know about your exchange is who you're doing business with. I don't recommend or not recommend exchanges, but hey, Jesse Powell's the CEO of Kraken. And in December, he was telling people on Reddit that you shouldn't use the Kraken exchange. It wasn't working, but he certainly didn't publish that on the front page of his website while he was trying to sign up customers. So I think you got to take everyone at what they do and how they treat their customers and make your own decisions. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's not great behavior from the company. Yeah, and I can attest to, I have an account on Kraken. I tried using them. They were completely useless. That's my personal experience. I'm not saying that's everybody else's. I stopped using them. And then I heard that, you know, they shut down. They were down for, I think, like over 24 hours and came back up. I have not, I don't know if they're any better at this point, but yeah, at one point they were really slow. So I, that, that's a little, when they went down and came back up, they claimed to have put up a new platform, but they abandoned their customers and their old platform, which is in my complaint. Just scrolling down because I want to quote him directly. What he told, what, Crack, what Jesse Powell told his investors and his clients was, this is a direct quote, we're not defending the recent state of the platform. It's seen better days. And I must offer my apologies for the lack of more impactful and timely improvements. But we're giving up and we're going to do a new platform. But he posted that on a Reddit line. If you went to the front page of his website, it said the best Bitcoin exchange is needed for serious and professional Bitcoin traders. He didn't tell these professional traders they were going to get locked out and have their accounts blown out because his system didn't work. Hmm. Yeah, that's... I mean, Coinbase showed exactly what they could have done in the same scenario. So, clearly, there was something they could have done for them and Kraken failed to do that. Yeah, I hope you're on my jury if you're believing what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) I think the exchanges have different problems in 2018. The SEC last week came out with an announcement basically saying that all these exchanges need to be regulated. And I believe it. I mean, if you walk in and you pay $10,000 for a Bitcoin you expect that to be an asset that's protected by wherever you buy it. So I tend to be in line with what the SEC is doing now. I say, actually, the SECs come to my way of thinking. Now, David, a lot of the folks, especially uh, the ones that came early into crypto, are more of the uh, anarchist or libertarian types. And they tend to think that if Bitcoin is anything, is it stands aside all this regulation and that the market itself should regulate itself. What would you say to those folks? There's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. (laughs) (laughs) That's an old one, but a good one. (laughs) So, and I think this is the last line of the first Coindesk piece I published. Everyone's an anarchist and a libertarian until they have all their money stolen. So, the guys who had their money stolen uh, at Cripsy and had hundreds of Bitcoin that got stolen at Cripsy. I have one client of mine in particular who should have millions upon millions of dollars right now. He was an anarchist. He was a libertarian. He believes in deregulation. He believes in the blockchain. But right now he's back to, he's a cab driver in New York City. He's back to driving his cab because he lost all of his Bitcoin. Now he very much wants the federal court system and the laws of the land to protect him and get him his money back. So, yeah, I think a lot of people in this space who are upset by what I do, I'm upset with a lot of the lawyers into the legal advice they gave their clients. I think there's a day of reckoning coming. I used to get booed off the stages at all these conferences in 2016 and 2015 and some of 2017. I now get standing ovations. I haven't changed anything I'm saying, but all the other lawyers are having their come to Jesus moment because the SEC has said, if you took payment and we haven't talked about the utility versus security token argument, okay, but yeah. there's no such thing as a utility token. I've been saying that for years. 
And at these conferences, I used to get screamed at by everyone in the audience. Oh, there's utility tokens. You're a bad man. And all the lawyers would say there was utility tokens, all the clients. If you're an attorney and you told your client that they were selling a utility token pre-network and you took payment both in U.S. dollars and you took a percentage of the tokens as payment... I want to sue those lawyers. I think the SEC is going to go after them. And I think private lawyers are going to go after them because those guys gave shitty legal advice, morally, ethically, and legally. And for our listeners who don't know, I, I mean, David, you probably know the exact words better than I, but correct me if I'm wrong. The SEC said something along the lines of that almost every single token or ICO they had seen was considered a security. That's the Jay Clayton quote. The chairman of the SEC says he has yet to see a token that is not a security. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much we're talking about everything they consider a security. Yeah, outside, and I tell people this all the time, for those people who tell me there's a true utility token, in order for there to be a true utility token, you, the creator of the token, will never drive a Lamborghini. If you want to drive a Lamborghini, you're going to have a security token. Hmm. So that's your hard and fast rule. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You can't make money off of it. Exactly. So that's the problem with the utility token. For it to be solely utility and not a security, you can't be traded on an exchange. You can't make money. It can never go up. So, you know, and that's why the lawyers who took payment in the utility tokens knew what they were doing was wrong because the lawyers would never have taken payment in a token that couldn't go up because it was a utility token. Hmm. Kind of a gotcha moment. We're about to have some lawyer-on-lawyer violence here. There's going to be lawyer-on-lawyer violence. Blood in the streets. (laughs) Quicksilver in the streets. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not going to be... That's not even David Silver saying that. That's the chairman of the SEC. I've been saying it for a longer time than he has, but I'm glad that he's come back and recognizes the issues going on and what has to be done. Okay. I have a lot of friends who aren't going to like that answer and who probably would still scream at you. But uh. Well, but I would say in this case, you know, at the very least from from a legal standpoint, if he was giving this advice back then and now the SEC is coming around, and I'm not saying that, you know, we'll stand on one side or the other. If you were just saying, hey, this is going to come this way and now it is happening, right? The SEC is taking this stand. I think I'd want to know. Yeah, it's good or at least getting clarification because the SEC is kind of been uh, cloudy on it for a long time and now these more succinct and clear statements have been coming out. I want to be clear here. There's a difference between getting bad legal advice and malpractice. The bad legal advice was to tell you that you had a utility token and not a security token. The malpractice was to tell someone they had a utility token and then accept payment with that token as part of your fee. Because once you did that, you knew you had a security token because you were doing it because you were taking it as part of your fee. So, there are a lot of bad lawyers out there. There's nothing wrong with being a bad lawyer. Now, regarding a little bit about class action lawsuits and some of the companies that uh, we have been talking about like Coinbase and Kraken, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, BitConnect. Now, BitConnect... He's laughing. He's ready. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think here you'll get a lot of people agree that, you know, BitConnect was definitely a scam. Eric Voorhees tweeted about it. There was was articles written on it, some of them Bitcoin.com. And we were just... 
I would say in, in this one case, the community as a whole was trying to warn each other, hey, stay away from BitConnect. It's definitely a scam. What took so long for the law to catch up, for them to be sent these, uh, what do you call them, cyst and desist letters? Is that what they're called, David? Yep. So there's two things here. One, BitConnect was what's called a high-yield investment program where they claimed that they would make you 1% compounding interest a day. And if you gave them $250,000 or more, they would get you 40% compounding a month. Just for clarity's sake, Warren Buffett says if you get 6% a year, that's good. If you get 10% a year, that's outstanding and he'll hire you if you can do it consistently. So 1% compounding a day would be 365% compounding a year is an obscene amount. So I think the reason why BitConnect, for instance, doesn't get as much love for the people who lost money is because even those people in the ICO space and that were bad actors, they use these high yield investment programs as a, look, you know, those guys are stealing your money. But the problem was that BitConnect went in value from zero to almost $3 billion in about eight months. And as everyone was being drawn into the Ponzi, everybody, and I speak, and I've spoken to more people related to BitConnect than any other of the lawsuits. I was getting somewhere between two and 3,000 calls a day. Jesus Christ. Uh, when the story first broke. They sat there, and this goes to show you, it's not just greed, but it's greed and a form of stupidity because most people don't care that they lost their $10,000. They care that they just want a replacement investment program that pays the same amount. And you kind of just have to hit, sit there and smack yourself in the forehead and say, they still just don't get it. There's no investment program that can pay you 1% compounding a day or 40% a month. It does not exist. Yeah, of course. I mean, that should have been a red flag. But I guess more to my question is, why did it take the law? Like, do they have different rules? Do they have to get some evidence? Like, why did it get that far? Why didn't the law kick in earlier? So, because the law is first catching up, the law, you know, it's a deregulated space at the moment regulators are first coming in, but it's not government's place to typically tell you what to do with your money. These weren't US-based companies. There weren't a lot of lawyers involved in the space. There was the BitConnect got so quick, so fast that it just took time to catch up to it. BitConnect was actually promoted mostly by YouTube promoters. Look, the government is... The government's not a precision organization. It doesn't get down to the molecular level. Government is a blunt instrument that can do large things at once and with blunt force. So when they come in and they announce all the exchanges need to be regulated, they can say for everybody, it's hard for the government and the regulating agencies to come in and say, well, guys, there are 10 high yield investment programs only BitConnect is bad. They can come in and say they're all bad, but it takes time to get down to the molecular level of looking at individual companies and saying what's bad. And the example I'll give that's a more legitimate example is Tezos. Okay. So there are a lot of people in the space who believe that Tezos is a legitimate project. Yeah. A lot of people think they have a, a great idea. Some big names have invested on it. And that alone for some people seems to be enough, but... And I'm not knocking the 
technology of what they're doing. But the people who gave them the when they raised the $300 million, they did not do it believing they were giving a donation that as Kathleen Brightman, the head of the husband and wife team who owned Tezos, said that they did this for a tote bag. No, all the investors did this to make money. <laughs> yeah. So it's insulting when they turn around and say, no, no, no. Thanks for your $100,000. Here's a tote bag. Exactly. And basically what ends up happening is I'm in San Francisco on Thursday. The lawsuit against Tezos is not a lawsuit saying the technology is bad. The lawsuit, the class action against Tezos is you sold an unregistered security. You're not entitled to that money. The investors are entitled to the money. And we're going to take control and the government is going to take control. And I think you're going to see some government action, some private action related to Tezos. And I think that's good for the space. All right. Now, for some of our listeners that may not be familiar with uh, Tezos in particular, they're essentially a company, let's call them. Uh, Maybe you can correct me later, David. But uh, what they're doing is they're putting contracts on the Bitcoin blockchain. So it's going to be essentially a layer two. It was supposed to have some governance. So instead of having to fork Whenever people disagreed on something, they were going to have a a governance structure and people were going to decide if you were a developer that developed for it, you might actually get paid by them instead of having to depend on donations of some type. That's more or less what I understand by it. They're supposed to be like an upgraded Ethereum, essentially. Yeah, like Ethereum running on Bitcoin. It was both a company and a a non-profit foundation, right? That was overseeing the funds. And I I guess maybe you want to explain a little more, David, how they were structured and I guess why that was a problem. <laughs> I always get asked, what are red flags when looking at ICOs? Here's a red flag to me. If you have a bunch of Americans who go overseas to create a foundation or to put their company so that they can't be held accountable and then take the money they make and bring it back into the US, they're not doing that to protect you, the investor. They're doing that to protect themselves, the company. So what Tezos did was they decided to do the fundraiser. They created a foundation in Switzerland. They have a company in Delaware that holds the code, the Tezos code, and they're going to give the code from the company in Delaware to the foundation for hundreds of millions of dollars. And that money is going to come back to the company in Delaware. Then the Tezos, which is a decentralized blockchain governing verification process, will take over smart contracts. And whether you believe that or not is another thing, but got my, like, like I said, I'm not a technical person. I don't claim mm-hmm. to understand the white paper, but I can only tell you this. I find it kind of humorous that the code that was supposed to solve the governance issues for the last year has been locked up in a battle to the death between the board and the owners of the code about Yeah, governance. that's been a running joke. Yeah, <laughs> that's been a running joke yeah. amongst all of you us. You have to appreciate, yeah. The irony yeah. is not lost. So, but I think uh, there's going to be some interesting things in Tezos in the next couple of weeks. I think they're going to try releasing the code. I think that people are going to be disappointed with what gets released. I think the government's going to come in. I think there's going to be a lot of moving parts in that before anyone sees valuation that they are hoping for as a return on their investment. Yeah. And just so 
again, some of our listeners that are not familiar, they raised a lot of money. I mean, we were doing some calculations and they had like 65,000 Bitcoins and 300 some odd thousand Ethereum. And our quick calculations was right now that's valued at over $850 million. At one point in time, when we were making arguments. It was $1.4 billion. I'll use your 800,000 as the accurate number right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah back in January when everything yeah, was, when it was high. Yeah. 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 I mean, we're yeah. still talking about a lot of money. So, yeah. You mentioned red flags about ICOs. What are what are some of the red flags you look for with exchanges? I know you mentioned the way they like treat their customers, but maybe for new people who haven't been around to see like some of the ways that they've been acting, what are some of the differences between exchanges that you think would help guide people? I think that the, the way most people who are coming into the space now, what I call the fear of missing out peak group, not the technical quote-unquote nerds who have been here since 2010. They want the more established, institutional, securitized, centralized platforms, whether that be Gemini, Coinbase, Kraken, Poloniex, slash now Circle, Bitfinex. Those people are looking for security. You want the most secured platform possible to do your trades on. As a quick rule, would it be... Would one be, let's say, to perhaps see where that exchange is registered? If it's in the U.S., you may have some type of legal standing to do something against them if something goes wrong. If they're somewhere else, you might be out of luck. Does that make sense? Is that something to look for? I would only keep my money in a U.S.-based exchange. Okay. So, I would answer that question, yes. And take it off the exchange after you're done trading. Yeah. So, we're talking about, let's say, (laughs) Coinbase, Kraken, Bittrex. Uh, it's Poloniex. I think Poloniex is in the U.S. as well. Poloniex is in the U.S. We're talking about those, some of those there. And not that we're telling anybody to particularly put their money there, but we're just saying those are U.S.-based exchanges. Gemini, I think, one as well. Yeah. Gemini is out of New York. Yeah, I say this all the time. I unendorse one or the other in my published pieces. I actually talk very highly of Coinbase. It doesn't matter that I'm suing them. I sue Morgan <laughs> Stanley and Goldman Sachs all the time okay. just because – People are involved in lawsuits. Doesn't mean they're necessarily bad to do business with now. Now, regarding uh, Coinbase, could you tell us a little bit about what that uh, lawsuit is about? So, there's a class action right now. It's not mine. If I wanted to file it, I have plenty of clients who I could on the Bitcoin Cash fiasco. But there are so few people who actually were able to buy in on the pump. So, most of the damages are fictitious. The, and I wish the lawyers who are doing the lawsuit the best of luck that if they find the clients, I think the better argument that's one of the, there are two lawsuits out there right now. I think the better argument that's in their lawsuit is the issue of forking and whether or not a holder of Bitcoin at a exchange like Coinbase or any of the others is entitled to all of the forks. Oh, so you're saying that just as they held the Bitcoin Cash for a long time and a lot of people were complaining about that, so it wouldn't just be Bitcoin Cash. You're talking about they would have to do all these forks that it's just they keep getting out of hand, if you ask me. But So it wouldn't be just Bitcoin Cash as all the other ones. The latest one, I think, is Bitcoin Private. Yeah. So I think that's the better case than the Bitcoin Cash manipulation. I believe the Bitcoin Cash manipulation happened, but I'm a contingency fee lawyer. I like collecting money. I think that's a better case than just going after the when Bitcoin Cash went up to 8,000 that day and they shut down the system. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I actually had a, 
a buddy that ended up losing uh, some money on it. He got in, then wanted to sell, couldn't sell, then it crashed. But you're saying essentially that, that that really isn't enough, perhaps there's too few people that lost money that way, or is it that there was some fraud in there along with, with what some of their employees were saying that they knew it was coming or something along those lines? Is, is there a difference there? Well, I, I, there is a little difference. Most of the people I know that were able to purchase it, purchased it around three, $4,000 for the Bitcoin cash, wanted to sell it when it went up to six, seven, eight thousand and couldn't. And then by the time they had the ability to sell it, it was back down to like 1500, 2000, 2500. Yes, yes. And I think there's a core group of people that fit that. I'm just saying, I don't think there's enough to make it cost effective for the litigation. Not that those people don't have a good case. Okay. How much does litigation cost for something like that? How much does a case usually run? So all of my cases are contingency fee. My clients don't pay anything. So it costs me depending on the size of the case, can cost me anywhere from 50 to hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more. Oh, wow. So your clients only get, only have to pay you if they win, if they get some type of money back, essentially. I only get paid if my clients get paid. Okay. So it's great to be a, a client with you. Sounds like a good deal. <laughs> Sometimes it's the other way around. Great business model for the client. It's yeah. a good deal until when the clients, you know, hear that we recovered millions of dollars and then I take a large percentage of it. But I'll give a, using the, the Coinbase case again. So the Coinbase case is up in the 11th circuit on appeal right now. You know, these, we won it at the trial level. It's being appealed in the 11th circuit. These are expensive processes to go through. And if you did it on an hourly rate, the clients would be writing checks for twenty, thirty, forty thousand $40,000 a month for the last couple of years. Wow. So much better for them to pay percentage later on. Exactly. I'm sure Coinbase is paying their their lawyers a pretty penny for the two years of litigation we've already gone through. I'm not a lawyer. I've never gone through a class action suit, but these things can go on for a pretty long time. I guess somebody would have to be willing to go through that. Yeah, that's true. I find a lot of the BitConnect claimants, they don't understand that one, they're not getting their money back. And two, how long this process just to get some of their money back is. What do you think the average time is? Like a couple of years, I guess? You know, at least two or three years. I mean, Mount Gox still hasn't paid out. And Gox went down in what, 12 or 13? And now they're, one of their lawyers is wrecking the market by dumping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fun never stops in Mount Gox. Mount Gox, I mean, so it is what it is. Yeah. What is your opinion on decentralized exchanges? Speaking of crazy wild west of exchanges. See, I think when people talk about decentralization, it's kind of a funny to me because Bitcoin has become just like the US dollar. 1% or less of people who 1% or less controls 99.9% .9 of all Bitcoin, just like in the US economy with the US dollar. So there's already centralization. Anyone who believes that it's completely decentralized, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people on Twitter. I always tell my wife, you know, as the more people make fun of me on Twitter, the more famous I'm getting. <laughs> I don't mind arguing with, you know, a 25 year old who's never had a job telling me about <laughs> the importance of decentralization. But he would, that 25 year old who's never had a job doesn't understand is, only 99.9% .9 is controlled by less than 1%. That's centralization. The only way for Bitcoin to keep climbing in price 
is for the exchanges like Gemini, Coinbase, Kraken, Poloniex, the ones we've been talking about, to become more centralized and institutionalized and bring in more money. So you can't have it both ways. If you want it to keep going up, you're heading towards centralization. So your argument there is essentially that perhaps to pull in the regular Joes, everybody else, and those folks essentially want more security. They want to know that their funds are not going to be stolen and that therefore these exchanges, Kraken and Coinbase, and perhaps some of the more legitimate US-based ones, they have to offer this security and it's not going to be centralized. It's going to be, it's not going to be decentralized. It's going to be centralized and regulated. Is that your argument there, David? Well, it's not my argument per se. I don't like the word argument. It's what I'm saying. Okay. But I'm not taking a position good versus bad in this argument. I'm just stating a fact of what's going to happen. So to argue, you know, the people who think that cryptocurrencies are going to overthrow governments and, you know, make a utopian spot in the world only have to know that more Bitcoin and value has been stolen than money printed in the history of the world. Wait, seriously? <laughs> seriously. How much has been stolen? If you convert Mt. Gox, Cripsy, the two hacks in Japan, what's going on now? That's more money than any crime ever committed in the history of the world. What does that up to, more or less, you know? No, I saw someone, I think Forbes did an article on it where they did all the bank robberies and all the ro- the most, the highest value robberies in present dollar versus the cryptocurrency robberies. It's astounding. I'll give you a perfect example. In the Cripsy case, I currently, by court order, hold 11,000 Bitcoin. Now, without the private key, those Bitcoin are worthless. Yes, yes. So there's 11,000 Bitcoin when people talk about market cap that don't exist. So until people can learn, until people can get back what belongs to them, I don't really foresee the system, you know, becoming the true decentralized system working until there's, and I think what you guys asked me earlier, do I see a self-regulatory agency doing this? No. It's going to be government-led across the world because... Governments want to stay in power. That's definitely an argument that goes back and forth, more so now in the crypto community, I would say, because there's a lot of a lot of newcomers that you have to explain that, that there's no Bitcoin help desk. <laughs> you know, they, they always like almost want to call the help desk and, and get, you know, some support. They, they may think there's company of some sort and, you know, people tell them that and, and they start getting that. But when, when things go wrong, they don't really kind of understand it. And now... When money is gone, there's definitely some fear out there. So it's, there is some, some negative impact on, I would say, on the newbies, on the people coming to Bitcoin now that may hold them back. Look, I'm dealing with people who have lost all of their investments despite being early adopters. So I wish there was a help desk. I wish I can go get my 11,000 Bitcoin back. I assume you guys know who Tone Voss is? No, I'm not familiar with no, Tone yeah. Voss. He's got a big following on uh, Twitter, but I did his show the other day. He was, we were talking about the 11,000 issue and I said, look, and I say this jokingly. So, you know, anyone listening and if this gets cut, you know, a certain way, I say this as a joke, <laughs> but I believe there should be a Satoshi God 
who comes in and there should be a God of Bitcoin. And if something goes wrong, you should ask God for forgiveness and God can give you your coins back. <laughs> I have several people I think should be God in the crypto space. No one's going to listen to me. This is never going to happen. But unless that does happen, there is not going to be a, the system is just at some point it's going to crumble onto itself until there's some governance changes and Tone's response to me when I said that was, well, if it does happen and you get your 11000 back because of a federal court order, Bitcoin's worth a dollar. And I said, well, that might be the true value of the Bitcoin. There's a book of Satoshi and uh, Miko recommended that to us last time. Now, there's also the issue is that so that Bitcoin is really global, right? We're talking about the U.S. does maybe about 35 percent in conversion from Bitcoin to US dollar. I think most of it happens right now in Japanese. So a lot of these issues that we're talking about are, are really, really, they are worldwide. And in this case, the US is is a major player when you look at it from the number of transactions that happen, but they're, they're not the major player. It becomes a real issue to have a god of Bitcoin or a god of Satoshi, you know? Is it going to have a Japanese last name, you know? <laughs> I think that part of the problem with that is, is that a lot of the people who are going to try and repatriate money or not repatriate money are going to find that the U.S. government doesn't really care where you are. If you live in the United States, you pay U.S. taxes. And I'm a big believer in that. So you're saying that no matter if you're here, well, and I think that's pretty much, especially with what happened with Coinbase lately, I think everybody is aware of that in a sense or they should be, I think. But I guess where I was going more with it is that it really is going to be up to the countries how they want to handle this. And we saw this perhaps with some of the things that were going on in Korea for a while, whether they were going to regulate it, whether they were going to shut down the exchanges and so on and so forth. And it may very well be that each country is going to have, will have their own set of laws and how to deal with it. And we already see that happening now. So perhaps for those people that want the security... I guess we would say, you know, if, if you're in the U.S. and you want the security, you're probably better off with U.S., as we said before, exchanges. There might be some recourse there, but lots of people will still have the wild, wild west, uh, to say, sort of. And they may not have recourse if, if they decide to go with, right now, I, Binance is a very popular exchange that's not here in the U.S., yeah, I mean, they're going to be able to use exchanges out, but look, there are governments all over the world that are interested in remaining active governments. If government doesn't control finance, then they lose a lot of their power. So I don't know. I'm not pretending to say that this is going to happen. I believe that cryptocurrency is the evolution of money. I just don't know how it's going to play out. Okay. All right. Now, to perhaps throw it to a little bit more of a positive spin and not that this is negative at all. This has been very good information, I feel. What are you excited about in this space, if anything? Do you, from your perspective, perhaps contracts, is there anything that you're excited about? I tell everybody the thing I'm most excited about is securities, stocks, bonds, uh, notes, mortgages, the blockchain should revolutionize the simplicity of those transactions. And I think that everyone should be able to use the blockchain for that. So I'm looking forward to what I call the next wave of the blockchain, which is applications. 
And I, when those applications finally come online, whether it be Tezos or someone else, I don't really care. I'm not for or against the technology. I actually believe that, you know, it's going to, the revolution's coming and everyone's watching it. How you profit off that's very different than watching it happen. Okay. He believes in the revolution. I'm okay with him, Jeff. <laughs> right. We don't have to put him on a stake. He's all right. Yeah. We don't have to burn him. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, people like to understand this. I am totally for the revolution. Nowadays at the conferences, I say, guys, it's really simple. Don't steal people's money and create the product that you tell them you're creating and you won't go to jail or see me. I am totally a believer that you should be able to trade a stock right now. If you go in and you have an E-Trade account and you buy a share of Apple stock, it takes three days for that share to actually transfer and move into your account and you have true ownership of it. That should be instantaneous on the blockchain now. So, you think in regards to that, you, I mean, you mentioned there's uh, the ruling but or not the ruling, the statement by the SEC that there's no such thing as a utility token. If companies want to do fundraising and make money off this stuff, just register with the SEC essentially as a security and, and not worry about it after that. Yeah, absolutely. That's what everyone's doing now. I mean, that's just 2018. Do you think people will still come after uh, or do you think the SEC will still come after people? If well, I guess they can always still come after people if they're bad actors. But do you think they will see like kind of like a, a equilibrium reached if people are complying with registering as securities? I think the SEC is still going after people right now for old-fashioned stocks. I think you're going to see them continue to go after cryptos, old-fashioned. I think, you know, out stealing, thieving, and whoring are the three oldest professions. So, yeah, nothing changes. It's just a different platform it's happening on. So, I think it's all going to equal out one day. All right. Now, you've mentioned elsewhere, there's there's a story out there that you received uh, five Bitcoins at a South Beach bar. <laughs> well, first of all, it's, a, it's an article I published. Uh, so, uh, yes. Hey, technically, I'm right. I mean, if we were in court right now, wouldn't that be correct? I mean, are you going to object about this? <laughs> that is a true story. Uh, all right. Uh, don't make me out to be a bad actor here. <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit more about that story? I actually met someone at the time who was a very large miner back in early 14. And he was telling me and a bunch of people about uh, Bitcoins. He literally took my cell phone, opened up a Coinbase account and put five Bitcoin in there. And I never touched them. Really? Yep. You still have them? I've got them and some more. Along with the other 11,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I still have those. And, you know, it's a... I am a very big fan of his. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, maybe we can be very big fans of him too if he, if, if he wants yeah, to. He or she wants can to. Can he yeah. give us his information? We'll bring him on the show and... Uh, <laughs> and have him give all our listeners five Bitcoins. Yeah, there you go. And yeah, all you have to do is send him a quarter of a Bitcoin and he'll send you five yeah, back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what we see like on everybody's like, uh, you know, YouTube page on the comments or their Twitter. And that's so annoying everywhere. Yeah. At the time, they were worth around $250. He was already a very wealthy person. So, he was making a point. He made his point. And it's ironic because of the group of people he was telling uh, the Bitcoin stories to, several of us are now in the cryptocurrency space. Okay. Last question for you before we close out, David. What's something that we haven't asked you that people need to hear about? Cryptocurrency, blockchain, 
any coin you can think of, is no different than any other investment you're making nowadays. Nothing infuriates me more than when people say, only invest as much money as you're willing to lose. Bullshit. Anytime you invest with due diligence, you should never expect to lose all your money. Interesting. Yeah, I always hear the... I mean, we actually said that with Mika on the last episode. <laughs> yeah, we. it's almost... Well, I, th- I think where we're coming from is that even though some of us obviously believe in crypto and believe in the revolution that this is coming, I guess what we're trying to say is that perhaps, you know, we don't know, maybe, you know, Bitcoin might go to zero, or maybe you might lose it or something. It, it's almost as a way to, from stopping the newbies, the people that don't listen to anybody from putting their entire life savings in. I mean, I think that's how I take it. We don't want people to do that. And some people just don't listen. I say anyone who says HODL, you know, is a investment strategy is an idiot. There's no such thing as hold on for dear life in an investment strategy. You buy high, you sell higher. You buy low, you sell high and make money. But if there's a drop in value or there's a spike, pull some money off the table because it's an investment. There's no such thing as a, like uh, just a, and I'm losing the word I'm looking for, but there's no such thing as hold on for dear life. With your point, what I'm hearing is have a strategy, have a backup plan, and don't let your strategy be just hold on forever. It'll eventually come back to a higher price than what you bought it. You're saying that's not a good strategy. No, because the world changes on a daily basis. If the US government announced that everyone who holds Bitcoin gets the death penalty tomorrow. <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. Might be a yeah. good time to sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but who knows, right? You never know. I'm just saying, when the Securities Exchange Commission came out with the subpoenas, I don't think anyone with intelligence should be surprised that there's a 30% drop in value with the US government taking such a proactive stance in the last two weeks. Doesn't mean it's not going up. But just imagine if the SEC drops subpoenas on every major pharmaceutical company, the pharmaceutical industry would lose 20% that day on the stock market. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I've sort of, we have some buddies that, that we are good back and forth with. And a lot of them are, you know, we're going to the moon and I'm not saying we're not, but I've also made the case, hey, you know, if for some reason tomorrow, the United States says Bitcoin is, is currency, right? And therefore it is illegal. It would take a big hit, something along those lines. I tell people I have enough Bitcoin where if it goes to the moon, my wife is happy. If it goes to zero, it wasn't my only holding. Yeah. If it goes to zero, you're not sleeping on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> Diversify your portfolio. My wife still checks Bitcoin every day. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've uh, kept you from going to bed for long enough, David. So, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. I think what you told us and uh, what our listeners got to hear from this was really informative. And uh, it was really awesome to get to interview you. Hey, guys, I really appreciate it. I love following Miko. And you'll get to hear his podcast as well. Yeah. We said <laughs> the exact device that pissed you off. So, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll hear about it. <laughs> Trigger warning. Great. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right, David. Where can people find more about you if they want to learn more? Silvermillerlaw.com. Excellent. You heard it, folks. Silvermillerlaw.com. All right. Great. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Have a good night, David. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. The podcast is hosted by Rob Peterson, Alain Leon, Deng Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Website created by Coco Lou and Kevin Van, and show notes and articles made by our editor-in-chief, Deng Du. 
If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and Google Play. We're a new show, so the reviews really help us out a ton. You can also find us on Twitter at Keep It Cryptic. That's K-E-E-P-I-T-C-R-Y-P-T-I-C. You can also find us on Medium or Steam it at A Bit Cryptic, like the show name. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep it cryptic. <laughs>